to the Tolls and Line Podcast. I'm your host, Gio Grassi. Today, I'm bringing you Philadelphia Eagles head strength and conditioning coach, Ted Rath, who spent uh, most of his career in the NFL, uh, bounced around north, south, east, west. I'll let him talk about the teams he worked for, literally north, south, east, west. Uh, Ted, thanks for coming on, man. If you can uh, just introduce yourself to the crowd, man. Yeah, Gio, I appreciate it, man. First of all, thank you. I'm humbled and honored just to have the opportunity, but you know, it's always good just to catch up. So I appreciate you reaching out and, and it's good to talk. But uh, you said it. My name is Ted Rath. I am the director of sports performance for the Philadelphia Eagles. I've uh, bounced around, been blessed and fortunate to work with some really great NFL organizations. Uh, kind of tracing back all the way to the beginning. Began in college, so played football at the University of Toledo, and then was was very fortunate to actually coach there for two years after graduation uh, under Steve Murray, who was our head strength coach, and he was a stud. We moved on from there, went to the Detroit Lions, which was a tremendous blessing because that was our hometown team. I'm from Michigan, the southeastern area in Dundee, Michigan, a little small town that, that no one's probably heard of. And it was really cool to work for the hometown team there for seven years. Got the opportunity from there to work with the Miami Dolphins for a year under a guy named uh, Dave Beloka with the Detroit Lions. who was with Jason Arapoff. Uh, and then met some really good people along the way in Miami from our sports science department. We had a, a performance director there by the name of Wayne Diesel, who's currently with San Antonio Spurs, but just gained an incredible amount of knowledge from Wayne and from Dave and all those guys. Can't say enough about, about what I learned. And then got an opportunity to go to the LA Rams for my first head strength and conditioning job, the NFL level. So took that on and then was very fortunate, very blessed. We had a, we had a great season that first year. I promoted to director of strength training and performance there, uh, which brings us here. And it's been, uh, you know, I got the opportunity to come here as the director of performance, really oversee the department as a whole and be able to work through the collaborative aspect of what we're building here within our medical department and being able to really be with some great people. That's more than anything I, where, where I'm at, which is nowhere, you know, it's, I, I'm blessed to have a job every day and, and every day is truly unique and just being able to work in sports with elite level athletes is amazing, as you know, Gio. So the people, the Sean McVay's of the world, the Doug Peterson's, now Howie Roseman, the Les Sneeds of the world. I've just been really fortunate, man, and I, I feel so tremendously blessed to be able to have those experiences, but the people I've met along the way have, have taken time and helped develop me as a professional, but also as a person, and that's that's what I love about this profession. I love about coaching. I love about the interaction with athletes, but also coworkers. We can develop as people and we can build these things and hopefully make a positive impact, not just in our sports and in our organizations, but the world. That's really what, what we're all aiming to do, I hope. Awesome, man. And then, you know, you spending your whole career mostly, well, most of your career in the NFL, how are you able to develop like your pillars of success and like uh, you know, what are some of those, you know, and what did you take away from your time in Detroit, Miami, L.A.? And, you know, how, how do you bring all that stuff with you now? It's a great question, Gio. And, you know, this is what coaching is. All my all my stuff is stolen from someone else. So, <laughs> no, and, I, and I use the word steal because I've been fortunate to acquire knowledge, but I've had the people spend the time with me. And I've learned an incredible amount of leadership from guys like Sean McVay. And, yeah, I was fortunate because we're around the same age, but – having some of the, the conversations that I had with him are some of the most enlightening talks that I've ever had. And that guy's so amazing from a leadership level. And I was really, really fortunate to be able to work with him and actually gain knowledge from him on a day-to-day -day basis. And he's, you know, he's still a close friend. It's is awesome to be able to have people like that. But the Detroit Lions taught me a really unique experience because my first year there was actually with our defense coordinator here, Jim Schwartz, while he was the head coach. 
And we came in and it was an own 16 team the year prior. So obviously the staff was turned over. We came into a unique environment. It was the first time in the history of the NFL that a team had went on 16. And we come in in 2009 at that time and we're kind of you tasked with, hey, change this culture, build it, fix it, whatever you want to term it. Uh, and then we got to go through that process. So within three years, we were in the playoffs. It was an incredible process. And, and it took, looking back now, it's all the things that you hear John Wooden talk about and some of the things that you hear from certain leadership books and some of the ways that you tr- you do try to develop people and players, especially. We, we focused on the daily tasks, you know, daily improvement, day-to-day operations. How do you get better? Well, you can't just fast forward three years or five years or 10 years. You have to focus on the day-to-day improvement that you can control. And ultimately, as you control those things, then you start to build into long-term looking back. You say, wow, we built that, but how did we do it? It was that daily effort, daily focus. And really, the Miami Dolphins was a really unique experience because the Lions in Detroit, they hadn't been to the playoffs in a long time. I think, I can't remember, 14, maybe close to 20 years, something like that. And we were able to get to the playoffs a couple times while I was there. And I was very fortunate to learn under Jim Caldwell at a later time, too. Then we go to the Dolphins, and they were in kind of a similar situation where it had been well over a decade since they went to the playoffs. And in year one, we made it. We got to the playoffs. And that was awesome to see how we kind of turned it really quick. And then go to the L.A. Rams. Literally, I don't know if I just have – I must have bad luck or whatever you want to call it. I always go to these teams that haven't won for a decade. The Rams that were in a situation where they really hadn't been in the playoffs in over a decade as well. Year one, we win our division. We go to the playoffs. Year two, we're in a Super Bowl. Uh, so very fortunate to be able to see very unique environments and unique organizations, but also seeing how certain things can work in certain environments. So lessons learned are infinite. I can't even sit here and begin to describe them, and, and I still always try to challenge myself and think about what worked and what, what I could have done better personally, and then how we could have done certain things maybe more efficiently, and always trying to challenge yourself and, and learn. But also looking back, and I think as – as I go through my career, this is one thing I've always tried to gain and allow myself to do because it's very hard for me to sit down and kind of say good job to myself, but also seeing some of those environments and saying, man, that was really cool what we accomplished in a couple of ways. So allowing yourself to make sure that, you know, hey, good job, sit down and reflect. Now at the same time, I still live by, I'm, I'm going to be happy. I'm not going to be satisfied. I'm not okay. going to be satisfied until I have multiple Super Bowl trophies behind me sitting on a bookshelf. And that's where my drive comes from because I want that for me selfishly, but I also want it for my family and for the organization that I'm with. So I want it for those people. I want to share those memories with the people that I go to work with every day and we grind. You know what the daily grind is like. So to be able to hold that trophy and to be able to hold that thing up at the end of the day is really what we're all striving for. And then through the through the course, you're making great relationships and you're learning and you're improving. And that's a big part of it is challenging yourself, getting outside your comfort zone and finding ways to improve, which we can all do and we should all do. Definitely, man. And uh, you hit it right on the nail, man. Like culture's big. I'm, I'm huge on culture. I'm always talking about culture more than I'm even talking about strength and conditioning at some points, man. But, uh, you know, it's funny you say that. Like, your, your big goal, I saw earlier, your big goal is to win three Super Bowl rings, maybe more if you can. And it's funny because when people ask me, why am I a strength coach? Why do I want to be a strength coach? I'm like, man, I just want to win. There's no better feeling than winning. When you win a ring, it's even better. Um, listen, hey, you guys are in a great situation now in Philadelphia where, you know, the NFC East is up for grabs. But uh, we're not going to talk football today, man. Fuck that. But, um, <laughs> Coach, data collection from when you first started as a player at Toledo um, and then, you know, gaining your first experience there. How has your way of collecting data, the importance of it, and what is the best data to collect changed then 
to now? Great. That's, that's a great question. <laughs> that's a rabbit uh, hole now. Shoot. Year one, going to University of Toledo, when I walked in there, the only data we collected was write down your reps and write down <laughs> <laughs> You know what I mean? So it was actually external load and reps. That was it. Now with that, you could get a total training load and we could do some intensities and we could look at time and things like that and come up with a standard loading. But from there, I mean, you look at what's available now. You look at our tech, technological advances just within performance. You look at the things that we strap on in the middle of a COVID world. So we're, we're all sitting through this coronavirus right now, and it's super unfortunate. But at the same time, hopefully it's helped people sit down, sit back, relax, reanalyze, and refocus. So for me, even during this time, we're strapping heart rate watches and GPS watches on our players because they're afar. They're, they're spread out across the country. So how do we still gather the data that we need? Well, to get an internal load and an external load, I need heart rate tracking and I need total load. So now I can look at volume. I can look at intensities of how hard they're running. And now we can start to look at where they get into from a speed band standpoint and making sure that they're tapping into the intensities, but also have the volumes that we need in comparison to training camp and how we'll step progress that. So that's one way. Wellness questionnaires are obviously very simple if you're limited by technology and you can still track certain things like load and then also see quality intensities and, and ratings of how hard they work. So you can utilize all those things. And then when you really look at what we have at our fingertips, we have multiple force plates. We have, we have velocity-based training technology. Gym aware is what we use. But there's all these different things you can, you can utilize to analyze the Nordboard data that's coming in, the obviously on-field tracking, which we use Zebra Technologies and RFID system, all those things, when you look at it from a global perspective, you're like, oh man, we're, we're collecting a lot of stuff. What in the heck are we going to do with this? But then when you narrow it down, I always love to say, keep the main thing the main thing. So if it's practice, the main thing is obviously going to be workloads. We're looking at volume, we're looking at intensities. And then how are we periodizing those intensities and why? What's our main goal? Our main goal is to get to Sunday and peak. The unique thing about the NFL is you have to peak weekly. You have to peak literally every single week for at least 16 weeks. So now, you know, are we going to start pulling back on certain weeks? No, but do I have a global look at here's our season, here's where our travel's heavy, here's where I got to take travel fatigue into account a little bit more seriously, here's where we can adjust and maybe reload and then get a super compensatory, super compensation effect going into that next competition. So we start looking at all those things and it's really unique because all those little pieces of data come together if you collect them in the right way and make sure that you're not getting too spread out and too watered down, but they all have a place. And that's what's really cool. It's just like football. There's 11 guys going at one time and 11 people have the same mission. It's to score a touchdown or prevent the score of a touchdown. So when you look at that, those pieces have to move together. It's no different within performance data and science and analytics because we have to get all those pieces to make sense. That's the hardest thing. And I think that's where we gather all this stuff. It's really, really easy to gather information. The hard part and the challenging part for performance coaches and strength and conditioning coaches is how are you utilizing that information and why? What's your why? Right. And I think that's the, uh, the biggest takeaway right there is the why, because I used to get into a bad habit of when I was younger to just collect data to collect it just because everyone was doing it, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, I would, I would say fatigue-wise, how do you quantify and measure some of your fatigue? Do, do you look at more internal loading or um, do you combine the internal and external? Like, well, what are some measurements that you look for? You know, both. Uh, internal load is going to give you, obviously, a very, very good picture of it. You can look at things like HRV. Over the years, I've gotten away from HRV. I think a lot of it is, is very, very unrealistic sometimes to actually utilize in our setting for some of the technologies that were available. Now, I'll say this. There's 
we utilize a ring called Core Ring, which I think has done tremendous things, and they, they're in the midst of signing a contract or have signed a contract, I don't even know, with the NDA. But a really cool technology, and we've been able to tie in some really neat stuff with them, where it's sleep tracking, which we all know is probably your number one factor in recovery, regeneration, and, and making sure that we're minimizing fatigue when able. So that's one thing, that it does give us an HRV score. It gives us body temperature. It gives us all these cool data points. It can help us look from an internal standpoint, all right, what's fatigue? One of the best ones, to be honest, still, and I, and I firmly believe this is wellness questionnaires. You know, what's your rating of perceived work? What's your rating of fatigue, stress? However you want to word it, term it. But looking at that data from a subjective standpoint and external loads, and then lapping that onto, okay, what was his on-field volume? Well, he was at 105% of his total or of his personal uh, volume, then I know that he's probably going to induce a lot of fatigue. So now from an external load, I can compare that and go back into his internal load the following day or two days following and look at what it did to him. What's the cause? What's the effect? I know the cause is from his personal highest output. Now, what's the result? Now, I know that's based on probably more the internal metrics. But those are some of the ones we're looking at. The force plate's a extremely valuable tool. I 100% believe that. From some of the metrics that we can get there, there is, without a doubt, thousands of different data points that can show us what's your neuromuscular fatigue status. Where are you at? Are you ready to train? Are you ready to practice? Okay, if not, where are you at? Are you 80% of that or are you 60 those are two very different things and two very different leveled athletes that I would approach differently, both of them going into a practice or a game. So when you start to look at that, once again, there's so many data points, but those are some of the big ones that we utilize. Man, I'm about to keep you on here for three hours, brother. <laughs> Just fire away. Um, so for gym aware, because that's something that I use and I feel like that's, you know, more affordable force plate stuff. I love, but I, you know, obviously it's, it's a lot more, uh, harder for smaller budget schools to get those. But gym aware, what are, what are your like go-to things that you look for on a gym aware? You know, total power output, I think number one is one of the easiest things to track. And if you're looking at Olympic movement, obviously we're looking at a peak velocity. And if you're looking at a strength-based movement, we're looking at a medium. I mean, so when we start to look at that, we look at change over time. One thing that I've always kind of done is you apply apples to apples when you're comparing data specifically. So I'll standardize certain exercises and I'll maintain the same load. And this could be a prep set, I'll term it that way, or a CNS activation set. And it might be an Olympic-based movement, but I say, here's the standardized loads. We're going to use this as your quote-unquote warm-up and prep sets. But as you take part in these, I want full effort. It's got to be a dynamic 100% effort lift. And then within that, we can compare that over time. And the cool thing with that, we overlay that with our force plate, but specifically to the gym, we're looking at some of those instantaneous exercises and then I can go back and say week to week, day to day, however you want to extrapolate the data and actually throw it back into a, into a measurement. But you look at it and where did the athlete go? Okay, here's where they were. Here's where they are now. So you really get to see that variation in neuromuscular fatigue. And I feel really confident just from objective data, obviously, which it gives us a great, great amount of, but also subjectively watching guys and comparing them to some of those numbers and those fluctuations through the course of football seasons, it's always matched up. And, you know, that's the I, – I firmly believe this. The data is great. The data should confirm a coach's eye if you have a good coach's eye. So if, I, if I'm completely wrong 90% of the time, I'm probably a bad coach. So usually when I'm like, <laughs> you know, he looks fatigued, let's look at the data. The data typically is going to show a fatigued state athlete and then vice versa. He looks tuned up. All right, he's ready to rock. What is he? Yeah, he PR'd on this, this, and this. All right, that's what it looked like. Cool. You know, so looking at those things, I think it's very important to keep the data in perspective. But I, I always stress this, especially the younger coaches who are coming up in a much more data-driven universe for this profession. Right. 
Don't get trapped in the data and make sure you're not forgetting the best tool of all, which is your two eyes, your brain. Use your coach's eye and use your, your experiences, which some people are vast, some are limited, but everyone has experiences. Start to build upon them and make sure you're challenging yourself. Is this matching up data-wise with the objective data with what I believe subjectively I'm seeing? And that's where you got to challenge yourself. and you got to have honest conversations with yourself and say, I was wrong, I was right, and then you got to admit when you're wrong because that's the only way you're going to get better and actually fix it. Yeah, that's awesome stuff. Yeah, just use it to confirm. Don't use it to coach. Yep. I, I like that analogy. So, Coach, over time, um, have you have you saw anything? I've heard you speak about it a while ago. Um, what's your experience with, you know, shifting body weights with athletes to either gain weight, lose, losing weight, um, and power production? And do you have any norms uh, for, like, say, a running back compared to a DB or uh, offensive tackle? Um, hey, he's gaining weight, but his power production is going down. How do we mitigate that, vice versa? Um, and are, are there any like objective numbers you guys look at to say, Hey, we need you to be here at this level. Yeah. A short answer a lot. We look at a lot of numbers and I think the, the case in point here is the days are gone or should be gone in, in my, my recommendation, but take that for what's worth. I think from the days where coaches would say, you're a linebacker, you need to be 250. Well, why? What if I'm better at 235? You know, so once again, I, I love going back to what's the why? Are you assigning a weight because it's a weight? Or are you assigning a weight because it's a powerful tool that's going to allow that athlete to be, one, as maximally powerful as they possibly can, but also as efficient and as explosive as they possibly can? What's that middle ground? Where's that happy medium? So within that, we look at a lot of things. You know, obviously body composition is one of the first things we're going to look at. How is the body distributing the weight? Where's the athlete? Is he top heavy? Is he carrying certain things asymmetrically? Is he, is he overweight? Is he just carrying way too much subcutaneous tissue because he's fat? Okay, well, let's fix that with a nutritional intervention, and that can go down another road, which is a huge rabbit hole as well. But for us, we're looking at things like force play signatures. We're looking at power data. We're looking at things from the gym aware, and we're looking at all these based upon the athlete's weight and then tying that back into the body composition. Where was he here? Well, he was lean. He was at 7% body fat. He carried this much lean body mass. He put out this power number, but he only, he only was this efficient. Or maybe you're looking at a reactive strength index, and he was only here. Okay, that changed. So we know he's losing efficiency or he's gaining efficiency, losing power. Those are the things that you have to start to balance. And that's the unique thing. Every athlete is so individually built. So even running back to running back, the two running backs aren't going to be the same because there's very – I've never seen two guys that are identical in the NFL in my entire time. So when you look at it, a defensive back is going to have a dramatically different general body typing than a running back. And then a linebacker is going to look very different than your typical tight end. That's, that's a bad comparison because they're more similar than not, but like a defensive lineman. So an interior D lineman is going to look different than an ex, than a tackle, offensive tackle. So all these things come in, but then within that, there's such an individualized nature to each athlete at our level where you have to say, okay, let's compare this to you. Let's look at your personal historical data. Let's compare it to you. Do we have ranges? Yeah, we have great ranges. And we have these standardized ranges that we'll look at for talent acquisition or combine typing and when we body type. Things like that are awesome. But within a grand scope, once we get a player, once they're in our building, in our locker room, we're going to build that as fine as possible to that individual athlete so that we know we're looking at apples to apples, but we're also trying to maximize that athlete and not just lump them into a subcategory because of whatever position they, they are. So, Coach, going back to the NFL Combine, bodies, what was it called? Body selecting, I forget? Body typing. Body mm -hmm. typing. Can you just explain that briefly, what that is? 
Yeah, you know, it, it's something I've done for a number of years in my career. But you look at the somatotypes and you look at the general build of most athletes. And once again, going into eventually we're getting into an individualized style training method and prescription. We're getting into individualized weight assignments and all these other things that we individualize. Now you go back and we regress. Let's go to the combine. Everything's generalized. We want guys that fit this height. We want guys that fit this body weight. We want guys that are within this range and their hands are this big and their wingspan's this. So now we're going regression style and we're going back to how is this athlete built? Do they fit into our generalized category? So one of the things I've always done is looked at, okay, body typing. How do we look at what's this athlete's current build? What's this athlete's current somatotype? What can we take from that? And what are some of the other metrics and the variables that we get? Because once again, more data, better. We get all this data collected from the combine. What does that tell me and suggest about a potential frame score? Where should they be? If this athlete's at 280 pounds now, but what if the frame indicates that they should be at 297 pounds? Okay, what does that mean? This athlete's built on explosiveness. How much of the explosiveness am I going to lose if I do ask this athlete to gain 15 to 20 pounds? Then there's that realistic subjective nature. So now that's a conversation between myself or a performance coach with a position coach, with a coordinator, with a general manager, where does he fit into our system? Well, here's what we've seen. Well, if you expect him to maintain explosiveness, but you want him to gain 15 pounds, that's probably going to be sacrificed a little bit within that within that time frame. So with that, it's explaining realistic expectations. It's making sure everyone in the organization is on the same page because that's point number one. If everyone's not on the same page and you're just you're, you're pulling guys into a building and saying, well, you'll just get them to gain 20 pounds, what if this athlete doesn't need to gain 20 pounds? So it's coming up with that kind of team first attitude of what does the coach want? Okay, what's the scouting department seeing? Where does this guy mesh within our organization? And then performance and medical wide, what's the checkoff? Is he healthy? Okay, if he's not healthy, how do you expect me to get him back? What if I can't back squat a guy that you want me to put on a significant amount of weight? That's a developmental issue. So these are all things and checks and balances that we have to go through. And that's it's really unique, but the combine within, I won't give you the exact calculation of how we're doing certain things, but we look at a lot of data and it gives us a really good indication of where athletes probably could potentially get to, where they are currently, and then also the subjective talks about where do they fit within our scheme and within this team. So what are some, let's talk about some of your strategies in, in keeping uh, injury prone players healthy or, you know, some key franchise players healthy, because you know as well as anyone knows, um, in the game of football, you lose a guy, quote unquote, next man up mentality should be what it is. But at your level, you lose one of those key guys. It's like, man, this might be a roller coaster season. So some of those injury prone guys who, you know, constant hamstrings or, you know, whatever. Um, how do you go about managing those guys? Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a great question, too, Gio, because when you look at it, there's a couple factors that we always look at. If you do have an injury-prone athlete, that's part of the factor of whether we're predicting future injury. The greatest predictor of future is past injury. So if you look at this and there's a laundry list and this athlete's dealt with 10 different injuries, I would be cautious off the bat. But once, in, once again, that goes into clear, open eyes communication of what's our expectations, if you're expecting this guy to go through a season completely healthy, but he has literally never gone through a full season, then let's let's make sure we're tempering our expectations, but also being realistic. Now, having said that, I'll completely contradict myself and say, I think most things can be fixed. So if it's an athlete with a hamstring history, let's get to the bottom of the hamstring history, but let's also find the cause of it. There might be a biomechanical cause of this. There might be an overloading during a certain, certain phase in the swing phase. 
there might be something where the athletes just completely shut off their glute on one side for a, a thousand different reasons. So let's find the root. Let's get to the root. Stop chasing the actual issue and stop going immediately to it. And let's find it and let's see if that's correctable. So within that, you set expectations. And then the same thing, if that same athlete is older, that athlete's 30 years old. If that athlete's up there in years in playing service and they started college earlier, they started uh, peewee football and they've been playing football for 25 years, that athlete's probably at more of a risk for injury automatically just be, just because we know from an aging standpoint that they're going to be less active, excuse me, less able to recover, to regenerate. So now I have to look at all those things into context. How am I going to train a 32-year-old athlete versus a 21-year-old athlete that has way less joint degradation and wear and tear upon their connective tissue? Those are two different athletes. So long-winded answer to how do we get around this, you come up with the strategies that fit for that specific athlete. If it is an older athlete, there's ways to deload and unload joint stress and connective tissue stress, but also maintain muscular function and still create really good inroads into the muscular system. So as we build that and develop that, if it's based around a hamstring, how are we activating certain muscles? How are we making sure that we're building in biomechanically safe and sound movement patterning? And then how do we get that athlete to function better? That's in, the, in the grand scheme of things, that's ultimately what we're trying to do is trying to fix the things that we feel contribute probably to this injury history. Are they fixable? Be honest, be realistic, and then start attacking them one by one. And then as you check them off, then you're going to get your answer eventually. That's the beauty, man. It's either going to break or it's not. But, you know, when you sleep sound at night, it's, I know I did everything that I possibly could from every aspect. And then you reassess it. And if there's something you could do better, you're honest about it. You self-assess and then you go back and you attack it better the next time. Yeah, definitely. So just, just for example, so would you say like your older guys, would you like not squat them as much as you would a younger guy? Uh, no, I don't think it's as general as that. Now, there's okay. different methods and protocols. I, I believe in unilateral loading, too. So if okay. it's an athlete with a lumbar disc history, then that athlete 100% is not going to back squat as often, as heavy as maybe some of the younger athletes who have relatively <clears throat> spines. From that, I can super, I can overload a rear foot elevated split squat with dumbbells or with a Kaiser machine, a Kaiser squat. There's a thousand different ways that I can do that. So now I don't have to worry about the unnecessary and undue loading on that lumbar spine, but I can still get really adequate inroads built into the glutes, built into the quadriceps, and I can stimulate lower body strength and power. Good stuff, man. So coach, what would be your message to you know a young up-and-coming coach being that, we're going back a few steps here, being that you said we're such in a data-driven uh, point in time now. What be, what would be like your one, two, or your top three uh, technology platforms that you would recommend people use? There's a, lot of, there's a lot of stuff out there that's too sexy. Like if, if, like if you were to ask me personally, I would say, uh, you know, maybe some type of speed tracking device, a Nord board, and if I had the cash, I'd get a force plate. Yeah, 100%. I mean, you might have hit all three of them right there. The, to me, the most important thing that you can track is actually on-field loading. So if you're looking at on-field loading, you have to get, whether it's a GPS-based unit, I'm biased because I believe the RFID is, is more accurate. I know it is based on the data, but also it's comparable to what we utilize in-game. So uh -huh. for me, you got to get on-field tracking. You have to be able to look at volumes and intensities just to build the health of your football team because realistically, where they break, where football players are at the most susceptible risk for injury is on the field, whether it's practice, gameplay. So looking at that, that's my number one. I don't think you can even even defer from that. That's me, though. Uh, from that, my number two might be a first plate. It's, uh, to me, it's that critically important. There's so much data that you can derive from it 
for so many different things. I'm talking about force velocity profiling. I'm talking about power adaptation and just strength training adaptations to reassess not just programming, but then get them into the blocks that you need to for whatever they're deficient in. Uh, so the force plate might be the, the next one for me. And then, then it's a toss-up. There's so many different things, I think, down the line where you're looking at Nordboard, you're looking at groin bars, you're looking at some really cool assessment tools. Uh, but I'd probably, man, if I had to, I'd probably go gym aware after that. So for me, it'd be the on-field tracking, be a force plate, and be a gym aware because I think those are foundationally three things. I know they are within my program. They impact everything that I do, whether it's programming, whether it's a stimulus, or whether it's a tracking standpoint, I'm utilizing all those literally every single day. So for me, those are probably my three most important, but there's so many things available. I, th- I think as you go through this video, and, and you know, we could argue all those, and we could argue, well, what about this? There's a lot of stuff available, but I do think on-field probably always comes first. You have to be able to track what your athlete's output is, and then everything else can structure off of that. If you have nothing else available, you can still build a solid periodization plan around what you know their practice looks like and their output requirements are going to be. Yeah, and I definitely right. There is a lot. And I definitely forgot about, I don't know how I forgot about gym aware and I use it all the time. But uh, yeah, so being that you said uh, you're at your highest risk for injury when you're on the field, obviously. Um, what's your take on comparing the NFL lockout charts that we've seen throughout these last three months of uh, the uh, coronavirus pandemic? Uh, and ha- what's your personal take on looking at that and saying, okay, we're coming out of this coronavirus we're going to see X, Y, and Z. Is it, do you, do you think it's going to be similar or what's your take on it? It's really interesting to think about. This is a thought that obviously I've been wrapping my head around living through this as I'm sure a lot of people have, but being in the NFL, while we did go through the lockout in 2011, this is the closest comparison that we, we can have to it. It's the closest by far. So being able to leverage that information, that knowledge, that data has been tremendously important. So going back and once again, reassessing, self-assessing, how did teams handle this? What were injury numbers? What were injury statistics? Let's look at it. Now, I think saying that is the most closely similar thing that we can compare. It's very, very different. This is a unique environment that we're in. The, the big thing that I, I keep coming back to from a nutritional standpoint, this is a huge consideration. I, you look at what athletes have done and what people in general have done over the last three months plus since we've been dealing with this in March is – a complete shift. I know me personally, I mean, this was a unique circumstance because I was moving across country. I had my family. I was in an apartment for a time downtown. We're trying to buy a house. We're going through a lot of stuff. And at the same time, we're not from this area. We can't even get groceries at a grocery store. I'm trying to get my kids milk and things like that. So now I'm going to sacrifice what I'm eating to make sure that they're taken care of. So my, my entire body is completely thrown off. So Looking at what our athletes have, the microbiome has been impacted probably more so than anything from right now. From this past three months, you look at what our athletes' abilities used to be from a recovery and regenerative standpoint. Those were based on solid, consistent nutritional programs and plans. Now you throw in this huge curveball that everything is completely shifted. What's the overall outcome? I don't know yet. None of us do. That's why this is very interesting. But trying to find a way to make sure that we're catching back up and making sure we're getting back to quote-unquote baseline from what we were. How do we get the bodies back and how do we get from a physiological sense our athletes back to what their baseline was in a normal offseason or in a normal postseason going into a training camp time period like we're in right now? Those are the factors that really, they don't keep me up at night. I sleep sound. I usually run around until I crash and pass out. (laughs) But those are the things I, I think about when I wake up in the morning. 
I, you know, it hits me in the head and I'm like, okay, what is this going to be like? What do we have to think about? What are the things that are going to happen that we're not thinking about? Always trying to see around those corners. That's something that I've always tried to do, but you try to look at what's coming. Why is it coming? So let's identify them now before we have to be reactionary. Let's be as predictive as possible, knowing that we can't be all 100% right now in a really, really unique time in our world. Yeah, it's funny you say that because I didn't even think about nutrition being a big, uh, you know, one of the biggest impact things throughout uh, this coronavirus thing. Biggest thing I've been thinking about really was, uh, you know, people's heart rates, um, you know, maximum heart rates coming down and whatnot, you know, and how's, how's everyone's breathing going to be when we start running again? Then, you know, I think about the Achilles tendon and they show those graphs. It's like one big scary thing, but you adding that nutritional component, that's like, oh, it's good. It's good. This is like a mega monster, you know, coming yeah. out of this, uh, coronavirus or what's going to happen. But I mean, for the most part, hopefully everyone's all right, but, uh, yeah, we'll just have to wait and see, but, uh, yeah. yeah. Well, you even talked about it. You look at just the stress response. Look at cortisol levels within athletes. You don't think those are going to be elevated? Then They're you're going to be highly elevated, yeah. Yeah, so you think about what people people are dealing with really stressful stuff, man. I mean, people people have lost their lives to this, and this, I never want to minimize this. So we got to think about the grand scheme of things, and not to mention, there's a lot of stuff going on in our world right now with social injustice and just the things that our athletes have to deal with, and we all have to deal with as people. I think it's been a time of self-reflection. Therefore, there's been probably a psychological shift in a lot of people. How do you quantify that? Well, we can do biomarker testing. We can do a lot of stuff, but you know what? It's going to take time. So once again, trying to see around the corners and what can we be ahead of? What can we adapt to before we actually have to get thrust into it? That's where we're, that's where we're trying to be. You know, we want to be ahead of that before it actually hits. Yeah, definitely. So uh, Coach Rath, man, before I let you go, I got to ask you one big question, baby. If you were not coaching strength and conditioning at all, what else would you be doing in your career or what other, what other job would you have? Man. Well, well, the, the original goal, my wife is a special ed teacher before we had three little crazy ones, but we would, the goal was to be a high school teacher, coach football, you know, kind of live the dream that way, have summers off together. Uh-huh. Uh, you know, but that's somewhat closely similar, man. I, if I had to throw a random one out there, I don't know. Uh, circus performer. I can juggle. That's <laughs> the best I got. I think I'm doing what I'm supposed to do for right now, at least. Circus performer. You clown, man. <laughs> well, listen, Coach Rath, man, I appreciate you coming on, man. It's a big privilege to get you on here and just talk and pick your brain about some interesting stuff, man. You did great and uh, hope to get you on here back soon. We'll definitely be in touch, big guy. Absolutely. Gio, I appreciate it, man. Thanks for the time and appreciate the invite. Humbled and uh, honored, man. Thank you.